Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape and Beer, with support from the North Face. Never stop exploring. Dr. Squatch, get dirty, stay clean. Chorus, explore perfection. An element, restoring health through hydration. Alex, will you introduce our guest? Jonathan Segrist is America's best sport climber, which, you know, is succinct, but I think he's basically the... I think Jonathan Segrist might be the best sport climber the U.S. has ever seen, you know, besides Chris Sharma maybe, but Jonathan has done more hard new routing in the U.S. than than anyone else, and that's something that most people don't know about him, but he has put up more 14 pluses and 15 minuses in, in the U.S. or in North America than than anyone else. He's prolific. I, I spent years trying to convince him to go on 8a.nu and actually have a scorecard and all that. And then when he finally logged all his things, I think he was number two in the world. Or maybe he was number one for a hot second. But uh, it was like one of those things he never wanted to play the game. He was always like not into it. And then he finally does. And you're like, uh, you're you're like number two or three in the world. Like that's, <laughs> that's That seems pretty good. Like, is, is that good enough? <laughs> you're like, Jesus, you're like right behind Adam Honor or something. And you're like, huh, you seem pretty good, you know? <laughs> Way to go. Yeah, you know, like, geez, why didn't you do this sooner? Even by numbers, he's maybe done more hard things than Chris at this point. I'm not sure. No, by numbers, I guess Chris is still on 15C and, and Jonathan hasn't, but it, it's pretty freaking close. And I think it's also cool is like, and maybe in a different way than than Sharma too, is that he's actually also put up a lot of, like, it's not that he's just bolted the one king line at a crag. It's that he actually has done a fair amount of development too. Maybe the, the the good way to put it is that Jonathan Segrist is an equal opportunity new rooter. Like he will just fill in a wall. And, you know, whether the line looks incredible or not, you know, if it's climbable, eventually he'll get around to bolting it, climbing it, and and moving on to the next thing. And so, I mean, he and his dad, who his dad is also an incredible climber, uh, have established whole crags, uh, you know, of both moderate and cutting edge routes. So one of the things we've noticed in the last year, there's been this intriguing discussion cropping up in our community. For the greater part of climbing history, the thinking was a first ascensionist vision was sacred. They put up a route and should stay that way. In reality though, it's kind of funny, a lot of routes were chopped, bolts were quietly added, but as a community, we often adhered to this idea that a first ascensionist vision was kind of infallible. And right now, it seems like there's actually a discussion happening about whether first ascensionist vision is set in stone. Can a route evolve to fit the times? So we thought we'd talk about it and have a conversation that might have seemed unthinkable 20 or 30 years ago. And after developing some of our country's hardest routes alongside countless sport climbs to the masses, Jonathan has some unique perspectives on how we think about the resources of routes and how we think about creating them and how we think about respecting the past. We're joined by producer Lauren Delaney Miller and our executive producer, Lisey Hendricks. I'm Alex Honnold. I'm Fitz Cahal. This is Climbing Gold. Jumbo Love doesn't have an anchor. You just go to the top of the wall? Yeah, you just climb all the way to the top. And then you walk down? Like, yeah, I mean, then, no, you then you're down? just like, 
fuck. Uh, I just down climbed like 30 feet and jumped off. Dude. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that sort of a bummer when a root doesn't have an anchor? Yeah, but it's like at the top of the head wall and it's like it's just such a vision. It's just such a quest to even be up there that it kind of like suits the mood, you know? There, Okay, there is an anchor. I shouldn't say there's not an anchor, but it's like the cliff is like this, you know, like like this is the the cl- the climbing aspect, and and the anchor is like over here. Like there's no way you could lower from it. Like there's mm-hmm. just two bolts. You like summit. You're like sitting in a bivy, and then it's like back there. You know, it's pretty funny actually. That's that's what I hate most about Joshua Tree. Everything you climb, you're like, oh, I got to the top. Now there's no way to get down. And you're like, oh, yeah. maybe there is an anchor, but it's on the other side of the formation. And you're <laughs> yeah. like, what do I do with this anchor? And you're like, oh, I guess I just untie and down solo some other route. And you're like, why <laughs> yeah, does this exactly. place suck? You're like, wait, like, I hate how do you clean this anchor? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I had an epic once in Joshua Tree trying to lower down this like 13 plus crack. And it, the anchor was set way too far back. And I should have known better, but I was like, oh, I might be able to lower. Anyway, I lowered like partway and basically got stuck from the rope dragon, which is hanging there being like, well, <laughs> now I'm just dangling and my rope's too short and I'm stuck. And this is totally Dude. stupid. So, like, I hate stuff like that. I talked to um, Pat Adams about this exact thing. And he was saying that like him and Colin Lance and some of the OGs in Boulder and stuff, that it was an actual thing where they would like make it a pain in the ass. Because the whole idea was that they, that, that's why they sandbagged like everything as well. Cause they were like, we want like the second ascensionist to come to this thing and be like, it's too daunting of a task and it's too hard for me to like want to even do, you know, they just tried to make like everything super pain in the ass. So there's like all the, like uh, in particular, there's a fruit called the violator that's in uh, Fern Canyon that I remember trying. And it's like, it's like, the dumbest possible placement of an anchor you could imagine. Like the climb is well over. There's like 20 feet to five, six. And then the anchor is like, oh, like over the top of the lip, like by three feet, you know? And you're like, how, how would you clean? I remember asking him like, how would you clean this? He's like, oh, I just want to make it hard. So like if some euros came, you know, they'd be confused and probably not repeat it. <laughs> well, I mean, I- in some ways, that's kind of a good opening for this conversation is how, how, have, how have standards changed? You know, it's like, because that is just not how people bolt anymore, I hope, for the most part. You know, it's like, yeah, it's interesting to think how much the and maybe that's just the broadening of the sport in general is that now now when you put up a route, you assume that a lot of people are going to climb it at some point, whereas 25 years ago, you were putting it up just to screw your friend. Or, you know, your local community, you're like, oh, that one guy, screw that guy. He's kind of short. I'm going to put this bolt just out of reach. And you're kind of like, oh, you know, it's like a really different vibe. Or just, I mean, even even more specifically, like you're bolting a route to create a pathway for you to climb the route. And like once your experience of climbing the route is over, then in your mind, like that chapter is closed, right? It's not like you mean that's the old can- school approach to bolting. Yeah, like in a lot of ways, I, I, you know, and that doesn't apply to every single route, the old route. But I do think that especially in the mountains, but even like to some large extent, even some sport routes and stuff like that, you know, it's like we're adding protection so that me and my partner can safely pass this section of rock. And after we're done, you know, who who cares what the following experience is going to be like? Definitely experience that myself. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes on your roots, actually. 
<laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm particular. I'm thinking in particular about the experience of Lisi and the people that come after me. And I want to say, you know, I want this to, I want this experience to build character for them. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard you've been teaching Alex too to, to bolt like that as well. That he's put up some masterpieces that are really uh, bringing in the, the repeats as well. We did have a very interesting experience because when Alex and I started this enormous bolting mission together, we both, uh, well, several things stuck out in my head that were so funny. Like I remember first wrapping the cliff for the first time and being like overjoyed with how amazing the rock was. And I was just like, this is insane. Oh my God, this is crazy. What a find. Like we're so psyched. And in typical Alex fashion, I remember him being like, oh, I don't know. Yeah, it's rock. I mean, it seems all right. It's fine. dude. It'll be cool. Um, but then it turned out to be um, totally amazing and like for sure one of the best climbing areas in Southern Nevada, if not the Western US. But uh, when we first started bolting, like Alex and I were bolting just directly next to each other. We both spotted lines. We're both coming down the wall, wrap bolting. And, um, and we kind of like, you know, bolt our respective routes. We like swap. So we're like climbing on each other's roots. <laughs> and I remember having quite a bit of feedback for Alex, <laughs> just like, you know, I'm a little worried with how low this bolt is or how high, you know, this is kind of, you know, I think I would have cleaned that corner a little more and all this stuff. And, and Alex, uh, pretty quickly from what I remember, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the conversation went pretty quickly to, you know what? I think I've kind of lost my patience for this bolting thing. And I, I feel like you should just do the bolting and I'll just do like the climbing and maybe you do some like, le like ledge work and stuff like that. <laughs> no, we, how many, how many routes did I put up over there? Like three or four or something, or I don't know. We, we each did like a handful you, in that first sector. I will say that in the end, I think once Sonny and some of the, some of the um, friends in our community had it, had a chance to also give you feedback that you did go back and you made changes and you edited and uh, it turned out to be a lovely route. And I think that you you did add two or three more routes in the end. That was actually one of the things I really learned from from new routing a little bit was that I put up a route, I cleaned what I thought was the route, and then the very first person I watched climb it suddenly grabbed all these random things way out to one side that I was like, totally. what is that? I was like, they're not, they shouldn't go. I was like, oh my God, they're going to die. They're going to kill the belayer. What are they doing? Yeah. Like, that is not. And it made me realize that, like, my vision <laughs> just had not extended two meters to the right or wherever they were. And I was like, this is no man's land. Like, you should not be over there. <laughs> I was like, oh no. Yeah. But I think that just goes to show that when you put up roots, you kind of have a responsibility to kind of clean the whole swath of, I mean, well, I guess you don't have responsibility, but you probably ought to feel a responsibility to clean the whole area because some random person is basically going to kill themselves or their belayer, like assuming that it's, that it's all good to go. I, th I think maybe, maybe that's like a real point to add here with this whole conversation on bolting is I think that when people like us just ramble about bolting, very few people actually have a good sense of what it takes to create a sport route, like how much work it mm -hmm. is to get into position and drill the mm -hmm. bolts and carry up the hardware and like having the right size bit and making sure that it's the right size bolt for the right size hole and making sure that it tightens correctly and that the rock isn't porous. And like there are all these aspects that go into successfully crafting a route that I think the average climber knows nothing about and, and doesn't need to know anything about. But it just means that people wind up with semi-uninformed opinions about bolting where it's like, oh, well, this route should just be totally different. And you're like, well, you know, they did the best they could with the materials that they had and the time and the money available. And like they tried to create a good route. 
but there's a lot that goes into it and it's just not that easy. You're kind of like, yeah, totally. I mean, especially in the case of like Yosemite, we're talking about, you know, if you're talking about like a, like a traversing bolted pitch on the, like 11 pitches up, it's like a little bit askew from where you'd love it to be. I mean, is the first ascension is really going to fly from New England all the way to the valley and like drive out there and then hike up and then go, you know, um, probably not. And it comes back to what you said before, Alex, that like as long as the first ascensionist is okay with it and there's somebody willing to put in an effort to make the change, even like something as simple as a spore crag, it's got a long approach carrying a drills heavy, you know, the first ascension has probably moved on to new cliffs or moves, lives in a different place or whatever. And so or, or um, they're just at home icing their back, you know, which yeah, exactly. <laughs> <Just> like, yeah. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, it, it's, it's often, I think with so many things in climbing stewardship related, it's easy to have this. I, I can't tell you how many times I hear this. Somebody should X, somebody should really make this trail better. Somebody should really move that bolt. Somebody should really. And, and every time anyone says that in my, in my, uh, in my proximity, I always just look at him and I say, you know, that somebody is you there. There's no like governing body that comes out to make these places better, to make routes safer other than maybe necessarily the ASCA. But like, generally speaking, if you make a comment like that, um, it might be a good segue to try and learn about like, okay, well, you really feel like it's unsafe. Well, maybe get in touch with the first census. Maybe they're like, hell yeah, dude, add three bolts. It'd be better. I agree. And then that's a great part way for you to learn how to bolt. And in some ways, adding bolts to an existing route is a, it could be a great like first experience of, um, you know, putting a bolt in the wall. The, um, you know, one of the reasons that I thought this would be an interesting topic or that Alex, this came out of a conversation you and I had, um, last fall where last summer there was this serious accident on snake dike on a half dome. And, you know, it's a 5.7 R-rated route. It's put up in the 60s by Bridwell and uh, a couple other people. A climber slipped. They fell 80 feet. They broke almost every bone in their body. They had to have their leg amputated. And it was really interesting because all of a sudden it sparked this debate. Should Snake Dyke be rebolted? It, you know, it's not like either of the climbers involved in the accident asked for it to be rebolted. It was like all of a sudden it became this topic. It's like, should we rebolt this? And it was, it was kind of interesting. And there's, you know, active threads about replacing pitons with bolts on Mountain Project. And I'm curious, like, whether everyone on this call, whether they've kind of heard these rumblings too, because they're not something I feel like that were talked about as widely maybe 10 years ago, certainly not 20 years ago, and certainly not 40 years ago. Yeah, I actually kind of missed the snake deck thing. I think I was gone. But I mean, I've certainly that the idea of rebolting classic roots. I'm like, yeah, you hear people argue about that all the time. It's just interesting because 40 years ago, the debate was whether or not you should place bolts at all. And then 20 years ago, it was like, oh, is it okay to bolt things conveniently, like sport climbing style? And now we're at the point, it's like, should we just bolt everything conveniently? And, you know, I personally disagree. You know, I'm like, oh, I'm not really into that. I mean, certain things it's worth preserving their character. If somebody else wants to go up and just bolt a line parallel the snake dike straight up, the, you know, if somebody wants to hand drill the like 300 bolts that it would take to make snake dike safe, like just do it 50 feet to the right and it'd be the same freaking thing. You know I mean? It's like the whole wall is like this giant slabby thing. Like why destroy this classic route that people have climbed for, for multiple climbing generations? 
just put up a different one next to it. It's like it'd be, you know, wouldn't be quite as good as Snake Dog, but it'd be pretty freaking cool. Like there's plenty of real estate. Yeah, Lauren, I'm curious. Like um, you, you've obviously worked on USR. This accident obviously was terrible. The people involved, it must have been super traumatic for, obviously. And we don't want to make light of that at all. But I'm curious, like, was there even a history of of accidents on Snake Dyke? Like, because you go, you go into the mountain, you know, like if you look at the route description in Mountain Project, it's kind of like there's several comments sort of like, this is an accident waiting to happen. And, you know, maybe it was. But think about how many people do that route every day during the season. Has there been a series of accidents on that on that route that would spark it beyond this this one instance? I don't think I know of any other like lack of bolt related snake dike accidents in like recent memory. There's lots of things up there with like people get stranded or they get off route or like there's been rep- there's was a there was a fatal repelling accident a couple years ago, but like all sorts of things that don't really have anything to do with like the fact that it's not very well protected. And I feel like it's this interesting route because it has a reputation. Like, I think most people going up there have some idea that there's not really very much pro and that, like, it's got this 5.7 R rating and maybe people know what that means. But I do think there was, like, a little bit of this feeling in the community of, like, oh, it finally happened. (laughs) Like, for years, people have been like, if you fell, you could get super messed up on Snake Dyke. But, like... It's really moderate and not just like moderate for Alex and Jonathan here, but like truly moderate, you know? And then I think that like the fact that most people can climb it is what has kept there from being accidents there before. And even in this accident, like this person got off route and was trying to down climb back to the anchor. And that's like when this slip happened. And so I feel like even that is like a little bit outside the normal realm of like how most people climb it. And we're talking about like, I tried to do the math. I was like, it's definitely a few hundred ascents a year, like with really good weather and like a great long summer season, like, I don't know, at least 500, I would think. And so it's like, I don't know, at that rate, you're like, the odds are pretty, like it is like pretty surprising that it happened, even though the risk has like been there this whole time, because I feel like most people just don't fall at all when they climb Snake Dyke. I think you raised an interesting point also that nobody gets on Snake Dyke by accident. It's not like a sport crag where, totally. you know, you never know what the route's going to have. It's like the thing about Snake Dyke is you're doing a two hour approach. It's a valley, maybe not test piece, but like a valley classic, like everybody knows about it. You have to choose to go there. It's hard to get there. I mean, just to get to the base requires a fair amount of research, like figuring it out with maps and stuff. You know, it's not easy to get to Snake Dyke. And so you for sure have looked at the topo and like researched the route fairly extensively. So I don't know. I think there's an interesting ethical thing there that, you know, for a route that you have to seek out and really put effort into climbing to begin with, you probably have a lower standard for for safety. You know, it's like if you're at a sport crag and someone's just going to like randomly try it sometime, be like, that one looks cool. Then maybe there's a higher bar for how safe the route should be because people might just wind up on it, you know, even though it's over their head. But nobody just winds up on Snake Dyke. It's like really Mm -hmm. hard to get there. Mm -hmm. Well, I think too, inherently, like I know as a person that, you know, does not climb at the level that Jonathan and Alex climb at that when But pretty close actually. In, In the grand scheme of things, you basically do. (laughs) Thank you. I I mean, definitely put that on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, put that on the podcast. (laughs) We'll be back with more after the break. 
I've been a North Face athlete for almost 18 years, which has been incredible, and I've always appreciated their commitment to exploration. Summit Series is the name of the pinnacle North Face products that I use on every expedition, and I love that their tagline is athlete tested and expedition proven. I've personally tested these products all over the world, and they've always proven themselves. Future Fleece is the next generation base layer that I wear almost every day of climbing outside, whether on the wall or at the crag. You can shop the full Summit Series collection at thenorthface.com. I first found Koros when I was looking for a GPS watch that could track my biggest outdoor adventures. I needed something with a massive battery life that was also robust enough to handle the climbing. As it turns out, Koros is the only GPS watch brand that has done some serious development for climbers, from multi bitch GPS tracking to indoor programmed workouts. The watches have a mind-blowing battery life. The Vertex watch series lasts for more than 100 hours in GPS activities, so I only need to charge it once every several weeks. <laughs> I only need to charge my watch so sporadically that I can never find the charger because I haven't used it in six weeks. <laughs> if you're interested in bringing new technology into your climbing training and tracking, you should consider their new Vertex 2S. Go to Coros.com and use the code CLIMBINGGOLD to secure a free watch carabiner with the purchase of your new Vertex 2S. Well, the thing is, I mean, for anyone listening to this, like the difference between 14 minus and 13 plus, I mean, JSTAR, I guess, is like 15 minus, but either way, 13 plus to 514, it's like kind of the same freaking thing. You know what I mean? To someone who's climbing 5'8", they're like, it's all insanely hard. <laughs> yeah, to I me, mean, they're all the same. <laughs> yeah. I do think that like when I go trad climbing, I'm accepting a higher level of risk because I know that most of the time when I'm trad climbing, there's probably going to be sections where there's no gear to place for significant periods of time, or I might run it out for a specific purpose versus when I go sport climbing, I'm more have the mentality of like, this is going to be a fun day where I'm going to try hard and I'm not going to worry about my safety, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think that it is different because in trad climbing, you're, I think for the most part, accepting more risk and when you're sport climbing, you're more likely to assume that there shouldn't be any risk. Yeah, I mean, I also think that like by location, like I don't think anyone really thinks of Yosemite as a place to go push into new grades. <laughs> right. Like it's not this is not dense sleep. Like you're never like, oh, I just climbed my first five six. So like now I want to bump into five seven. So I'm going to go try to climb. Yeah, snake Yosemite, like, is, like Yosemite is where you go to climb six grades below your max and get scared out of your butt. Oh, totally. <laughs> but like, I feel like I was talking yeah. to people about this before this. We got on this call and I was like, oh, I think that Yosemite is a place where like a lot of the achievement factor there is like overcoming mental obstacles way mm -hmm. more than overcoming like physical obstacles whereas like or logistical or logistical or anything but it's like really you have to be pretty good to like be physically climbing at your limit in yosemite like you shouldn't climb on you shouldn't fall on moderates in yosemite anywhere because they're so low angle that like even if you sewed <laughs> them up you'd probably break your ankles you know and so it's like you'd hit ledges and all this stuff so i feel like it's just like not a place where most people should be falling really at all. <laughs> yeah, that's that's also sort of an interesting point that easy climbing is always fundamentally more dangerous than hard climbing because it's always lower angle. Like easy climbing has big ledges and like big features and like things that you're going to hit. It's like falling down the slab wall in the gym and bouncing off all the volumes. You're like, oh no. <laughs> it's like falling <laughs> falling on like five, six slab is like all bad news. Whereas like falling on a 514 route, it's like even a 514 slab is going to be completely... Actually, I wonder if there are any 514s in the world where, like, if you fall, it's dangerous. Oh, I mean, obviously, well, no, 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 no. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like well, they're trad routes. 
no, no, I mean the hard trad routes and things, of course, but I mean like bolted sport routes where you're like, oh, if I pitch off this 514, like I might hit a thing or like get injured. The, oh, you know, there might sure. be There might be a few, but it's yeah. really super uncommon. You know what I mean? Like, like you go up to Clark Mountain or something and there's not a single route where you can hit anything if you fall off. Like even the easier grades, you know, it's like, like yeah. a lot of sport drags, like is they're just inherently safe. Like you could fall at any bolt on any route and not touch anything because they're steep or they're clean. For sure. When we're comparing that to like low angle Teflon grand slabs, yeah. <laughs> then a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are some sport routes though that do have places you can't fall on them because you will hit something where you will, you know, potentially deck. Super uncommon though. I mean, can you like anything around here that you can think of? Other than well, my roots. <laughs> uh, um, I mean, off the top of my head. Uh, well, yeah, you're no. no, but that's not actually dangerous. So. I, I think that that's actually more common in trad climbing areas that have sport roots. Exactly. Like, I mostly agree with what you're saying with, I, I think, especially in older roots, a lot of times they were bolted in an ethic where it's well protected when it gets really difficult. But mm-hmm. if the difficulty respective to the grade of the route falls enough, then the distance between bolts is going to go dramatically up. So like an area that we've both climbed out a lot, Alex, is Seiyu's. And, you know, tons of, most of Seiyu's is bolted in the 80s and 90s. And Smith Rock would be another example that echoes the exact same character that I'm talking about. Or, but, or the VRG. Or the VRG, States, where yeah. like if you're if you're endeavoring onto a 13C in Seiyu's and the climbing uh, difficulty drops below, like let's say 512 into even 511 terrain, which with no chalk on the holds and you know you're way up there and and you're in the sun <laughs> and whatever can feel pretty engaging. I mean, there are times when the bolts are 10 feet apart in the hard climbing and then in the easy climb, easy quote unquote climbing respective to the grade, all of a sudden you're just in a sea of limestone where, I mean, I can remember moments in Seiyu's where I was looking up the wall and I couldn't see the next bolt and there's features kind of going in a lot of different ways. So it's not like there's one line of holds. It's like, I could climb, should I climb a little bit to the right or a little to the left? Like, am I going to crest this horizon and then discover that I'm like 18 feet left of where I need to be, you know? <laughs> Dude, that's uh, the root, the, the black bean in Seiyu's. The black it's like bean a, is like exactly what I'm thinking that about. It goes to, yeah. to the top of the wall. Yeah, I remember the top of the black bean. It, I the mean, final it's be, 80 feet, it probably has three bolts. Yeah, yeah, it's like, it's like 30 feet between bolts. And there are literally times when you look below you and you can't see your previous bolt because it's like a bulge. And so the rope is just like, you know, just bending in the wind. And then you look above you and and again, you have no concept of which direction you're even supposed to move. So you're really, it, it, and you know, respective to, because I think they call that route 13D or 14A or something. And at this point, you're probably climbing 12 minus or 11 plus. Um, but it takes a certain mental fortitude that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily find it a lot, a lot, a lot of other sport grads. And, that, and I think you find that a lot at a place like Smith Rock too. But again, like we mentioned earlier, I think that, you wouldn't get on black bean. There's no way that you would climb black bean 
and not know that that was going to be a part of your experience. It might be a little more raw than you had originally signed up for, but it's not like you would climb that route and be like, I expect to see a bolt, you know, have a bolt at every body length. It's like you would know by the guidebook or by friends or by hearsay that like you're going to, you're journeying into uncharted territory. (laughs) (laughs) Alex, you pointed out earlier that 40 years ago is, are there bolts at all? 20 years ago is like, do we start to bolt with comfort in mind? Why do you think um, the conversation about maybe revisiting older routes is happening right now? Well, I personally think that it has a little bit to do with the shifting standards. It's like most climbers nowadays have started climbing within the last few years. They've started climbing in a gym and they just don't have that kind of background. You know, like these run out tratty routes are like, that is scary. You know, if, if you grew up climbing in the gym and you've only been climbing a few years, like you just don't want to be that uncomfortable. It's scary. And, you know, and you've come into climbing well past all the bolting debates and the ethical, you know, the bolt wars of the 90s and 80s and sport climbing, like all that stuff is ancient history. You don't know anything about it. You don't care. You just want to have a good time when you're climbing. And you're used to having a good time climbing in the gym because, I mean, gyms are manufactured to be safe. You know, it's like the wall angles are designed so that you're always safe. And so, you know, and the setting definitely has safety in mind. And so it's like if you grew up climbing in a gym, and then you go outside, you're like, WTF, like, why is this not safe at all? Like, this is not the climbing that I signed up for. You're kind of like, well, you know, it's like climbing came from a different different world. You know, it's like, it wasn't always like that. <laughs> Jonathan, in, in like, I liked how earlier you used that, that idea of like, Alex made edits to his route <laughs> after receiving feedback. And it sounds like you're writing an article for a magazine <laughs> in that situation, not putting up a first ascent. And For you today, you happen upon a 12, you know, say you wrap down and you got a 12A that you just wrapped down. Now, how do you think about it? Because it sounds like you don't just think about it in terms of like line of least resistance that allows passage on this day for me to complete this route and then I'm never worrying about it again. It seems like you're taking that into mind. How do you approach it now? I think to address the larger question, I, I personally feel that climbing is big enough and there are enough routes that I like that there's diverse character of climbing experiences to have. I really like the fact that there are really run out routes and that there are safely bolted routes. And I take that into consideration when I do any of my own development. And I think the thing that I try to use as a gauge for, you know, how closely or, or liberally I'm going to bolt a route, um, is one of the things is definitely the character of the crag, right? So like if I were to go and bolt a route at Smith Rock. Like if I were to find some virgin rock there that was incredible and it was going to be even an easier route, it would be impossible for me to not honor the tradition of Smith Rock and to keep the character of the climbing there similar because I have an immense respect for history. And I also recognize, like we just mentioned, that climbing wasn't always just, uh, you know, gym climbing and wasn't always a clip up routes and stuff like that. But I also try and stay aware of... Like, here's a great example. If I was going to, if I was bolting an area and the, the, the route that you just said that I was wrapping down, it's like some 12A. Well, maybe that 12A is going to be the warm up for the crag. It's the easiest route there. And I know that people are going to be running, chucking laps on it every single day. And to some extent, that route is going to become a bit of utility as opposed to people coming there to seek out the experience of climbing that exact route. Then I would definitely tend towards making it as user-friendly as possible. 
let's say you've got a line of six people that are all going to warm up. Well, I don't want two of them that are a little bit afraid to take two hours to get up this route because the bolts are really far apart. So like little things like that I might consider, but like I've done a lot of bolting at this area called the Finns in Idaho. And my original vision for that place was very much in parallel to my absolute love for Seiyu's, what we were talking about earlier, which is very run out and kind of classically bolted. And I think that in a place like that, again, to stick with the character of a lot of the other routes and the style of climbing, it's also a very perfectly clean vertical wall where there's nothing to hit. Um, even a route that I thought might end up being a warm up, I would suit it a little bit better for the masses, but I would never put a route that was totally out of character with the rest of the area, just dat, right, right smack dab in the middle of a zone that um, was otherwise, you know, a little bit exciting. Jonathan, do you also feel like you're taking into account like almost like the wilderness character of the place where you're climbing, right? Like a place like, say, Half Dome is obviously pretty different than like the VRG or places like the Owens River Gorge, you know? And do you feel like you're thinking about it differently when you're though, thinking though about it? Surprisingly, uh, the VRG is surprisingly similarly bolted to the South Face of Half Dome, <laughs> <laughs> like, even though they're wildly different you know, wilderness experiences and very different characters. No, but like, you know, the bolting is pretty similar in places. <laughs> I No, Lauren, I totally appreciate and understand what you're saying. And yes, that is true. Like, Roots that I've bolted in the mountains in Colorado, you know, I'll do my best to camouflage all of my hangers. But on top of that, it's quite an ugly scene to turn a corner if you're on a hike and you're not a climber. Even if you are a climber, I don't know about you guys, but I hate looking up at a wall and seeing, you know, a like reflective shiny bolt every three feet when I'm like far away from civilization and having a bit of a, you know, feeling like a, an adventure experience. Um, so yeah, to answer your question, I definitely take that into consideration. Whereas like if I was bolting at a quarry that was roadside and it was overhanging and I knew that there was going to be fixed chains on every single draw, you know, then it's like, okay, let's just make this thing like, let's put bolts four or five feet apart. And then that way, you know, it's easy to dog up the route. It's steep. Like, let's get people, let's like, again, like it's just, it's just kind of balancing the idea of a route being like from the perspective of utility and then from the perspective of experience. And I think that based on like the aesthetics and the setting of a route and the area in which it's in, I'm going to, I'm going to skew that ethic to the experience versus to the utility. I'm sort of like back to our original point. It's like, so when are you allowed to retrobolt things? <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> like, you know, is the well, scale just slowly sliding you know, it's like, is is it slowly becoming more about utility? Where it's like, oh, enough people complained. It's like, you know, there were enough comments in the comment box. Nobody <laughs> liked the fact that it was slightly scary to get to the third bolt. So now we just change it. You know, like, at what point do you accommodate the masses versus just tell the masses to toughen up and, you know, get over their fear? I think, I mean, we've been talking about the VRG a lot, but I think that's an interesting place where there's a lot of examples of this, where things have been retrobolted so that more people can enjoy the roots. Like I saw Jesus at the chains, for example, it used to be that that route had five bolts and you couldn't fall at all because you would deck at any single point. Um, and no, you, then, you wouldn't deck. It just would be really, really scary. Like, <laughs> no, I'm, pretty I mean, sure, I'm pretty sure you would like before. No, may, maybe from like the second decked. or something. No, no, I, I did it way back when. And I, I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to hit the ground. But I was like, this is so scary. It's like, you know, it was, it was super run out. Like, but once but, you're like, above the second or third bowl, like it's, it's 10 fine. years ago, you know, and part of the reason that was justified wasn't just for safety. It was also so that more people 
could enjoy that route, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and w- so, which is a which is a nice route, but then isn't it a little sad that now the name doesn't mean anything? You know, it's like now it's just a normal <laughs> No, but it's route. still run out at the top. Like, you're Well, but still, not like it was. <laughs> no, but you're still like, you know, 20 feet between bolts at the top on a slab, and it's scary. And I don't know. I think that they're, like, it's interesting to think about things being retro-bolted for safety and also for for the fact that like more people could potentially enjoy it. Mm, yeah. I, yeah. I, I actually have a story that fits right in line with this. I, I did a, a trad climbing first ascent at an area that's called wizard's gate outside of Estes park, Colorado. That was called book of spells. And it's like 12 B or something like that. And it's awesome. I mean, it has like these cool overlapping corners and, and I did the whole thing on gear and I put in an anchor. Um, and not, too surprisingly, nobody it was ever never. Again. Be, I think it, yeah. I think it got done once actually. Because well, who's uh, going to carry a rack up there? They're like whatever. It, precisely <laughs> right, and and yeah. it was cool because it was so obviously a trad route in my opinion. Um, but at the same time, it was like well, you got a sport climbing area where people you know on weekends in the summer there's 40, 50 people here now, and another twelve A or B or C might be rad or whatever. And so actually Josh Wharton, who's about as hard man as they come, is like alpinist, total badass, all around climber. He came to me, it's his backyard area. And he was like, hey man, I think if we bolt this thing, it's going to be like another route and people are going to enjoy it. And it's going to be like, like spread out the warming up. And, and like Lisey's saying, it's just going to be, you know, I saw Jesus at the chains at the VRG. It only had five bolts. It probably only had five ascents in like 30 years, you know? <laughs> and now it's been done like probably 10 times this season. Um, and so that, that exact thing, I gave Josh my blessing and he went ahead and bolted it. And, um, and you know, it was, I was a bit reluctant. So the question though, now, is it a classic that people love doing, or is it just like another random five twelve? Um, I don't know. I haven't checked in. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a good, it's a good route. It was a cool trad route. You know, I, like I said before, generally my thought is that I really admire climbing history. And I think that the, the, um, scarcity of bolts is, you know, for one reason or another, be it ethical or they literally were just out of money or they were hand drilling everything and it took forever. But that is a part of climbing history. And it also facilitates a certain experience that is very unique and it might be slightly dangerous or scary at times, but climbing is big enough and there's enough routes and enough different cliffs to go to and different routes to climb that Generally speaking, I'm in favor of maintaining the character of those routes just to have, um, you know, something else, a different type of climbing to experience. We'll be back with more after the break. Element is a zero sugar electrolyte drink mix formulated with a science-backed ratio of sodium to potassium to magnesium. Each packet delivers a meaningful dose of electrolytes free of sugar, artificial colors, or other dodgy ingredients. It tastes great, and I've used it extensively on expeditions. Element is formulated for anyone looking to restore health through hydration, and is perfectly suited for athletes, folks who are fasting, or those following keto, low-carb, whole food, or paleo diets. Try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, they'll refund your order, no questions asked. So whether you're a new or returning Element customer, you can get a free Element sample pack with any drink mix order when you go to drinkelement.com slash climbinggold. That's drinklmnt.com slash climbing gold. 
Dr. Squatch crafts natural, high-performance personal care products with no harmful ingredients. I don't shower often, but when I do, I use Dr. Squatch. I especially like the Summer Citrus Bar Soap. From soap to shampoo to conditioner, they help me look, feel, and smell my best for whatever adventure I go on. They're offering listeners 20% off any purchase for new customers with the code CLIMBINGGOLD, or you can go to drsquatch.com slash honald. Dr. Squatch, get dirty, stay clean. Yeah, I think there's an interesting point there around considering the intention of the first ascensionist because some routes might wind up being really sporty because the first ascensionist wanted it to be a certain type of experience. And then some might, might wind up being sporty because the first ascensionist ran out of bolts. And, you know, in those kinds of cases, it's probably worth retro bolting them because the first ascensionist would have if they could have. And actually, I, I put up a route in Yosemite uh, that was maybe a 50 meter mid 513 slab pitch. And I only had 10 bolts. And so I put in the two for the anchor. And then I was like, well, now I have eight Uh bolts left. And so then (laughs) I very carefully wrapped down the wall and was like, I need one in these places because they're the cruxes. And then I kind of marked the places where I thought I could get gear. And I was kind of like, well, that leaves me. And so long story short, the pitch wound up being very sporty because I only had 10 bolts. And you're kind of like, you know, in retrospect... I probably just should have bought more bolts, but I just didn't really know how. I didn't know the size. You know, I was in the valley. I'm in my van. It's like I'm ready to do the thing, and I just made it work with what I had. But it's not like I'm totally committed to that style. You know, I'm not like, oh, this is the best route that it could possibly be. I'm like, you know, with five more bolts, it'd probably be a better route. But, you know, somebody else can. The thing is, I mean, I'd never hand drilled. It took me forever. The whole thing was laborious. And I was like, you know, I'd rather punch it another 30 feet than drill another bolt. You know, it's like, yeah, I just do not care. Yeah, But if somebody, you know, it'd be a better route, though, if somebody fixed it up a little bit. So I don't know. Nobody yeah, I mean, asked. I think I, I totally agree. I think that's where my ultimately my decision to give Josh my blessing to bolt that trad route came is it's like if, if there were people enjoying that route as a trad route, even once every three years and like, oh, that was cool. And it's so rad to have something different at this cliff. I'd be like, no dude, leave it. It's rad. It's different. You know, whatever we can have a different thing, but to know that it, you know, since doing it in 2007 or whenever I did it, that it had probably been repeated once. I was like, well, if ultimately, if, you know, if dozens of people are going to do this and enjoy it, then I think that is probably making the world a better place than it is to me to just be like, Oh, I did it on gear. So no one else should ever, you know, and that's the thing is you could still do it on gear. Although you're no, for sure, that's never going to happen. <laughs> Not, now, if I'm ever back in back in Estes, I'm going to do that on gear just out of principle. Yes. <laughs> be like, what a great trap. Yes, dude. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, carry, carry my rack up there. Well, this kind of makes me feel like, oh, it just seems like this great situation in which like you're reasonable and Josh Wharton seems reasonable and you're like having this dialogue about it. But it's like a lot of these older routes that weren't bolted very closely are like, put up a long time ago and so now people want to maybe revisit changing them and like that first ascension is isn't there to consult anymore you know or they don't want to con- like or he's a super cranky old man yes that's, and they're like no challenge. don't do that and then it's like oh then what do you do you know like this example is good for kind of like how th- this can go well <laughs> but like it does that's not always what happens especially when you're talking about places like yosemite where like a lot of these people are not ever going to consent to their route being changed or they're not even around to talk to anymore and then like how i guess like as a community do you then decide what to do with these roots you know if there's almost like a lot of people that feel strongly about it and like no one's like in charge of that route anymore 
I mean, I always feel like to some extent, whoever's willing to do the work gets the final say on something. Like if someone's willing to go up there and retrobolt something and they do it, it'll probably stand because nobody else is probably motivated enough to go and chop it. You know, it's like to some extent, it's like if you're willing to do the work, just go and do the work because like, you know, that's Lauren, you're right in the sense that especially in a place like Yosemite, a lot of the first ascensionists have passed and we can't have a conversation with them. And in that situation, I think it becomes really tricky. But if they're around and willing to have a conversation, I think that that is 100% full stop where we always start the conversation. Because in an effort to maintain history, it's always worth talking and like exactly like Alex said, there is a story that's untold, right? All we need to do is ask, is say, hey, you know, Scott or, or you know, Bill or whoever you are, what, what, like, tell me about this route. Like, what's up with it? It's insanely dangerous or, or it's so scary. Like, what was going on? And it could very well be, oh, dude, I lived in my mom's basement and I didn't have enough gas money to get to the valley. So I spent... You know, I needed some food for the day, so I bought one less bowl and then I didn't know where to put it or or my battery <laughs> ran out or my bit went dull or or it could be. Yeah, man. I mean, I did the backer urine the year before and I was really inspired by the, the feeling that it gave me. And I wanted and I saw like the style and the holds on this route to echo something similar to that. And I wanted to like, ha- you know, recreate that type of experience. And in that case, you're like, well, I mean, if you think about <laughs> a first ascensionist, it. yeah, it's like you think about a first ascensionist as having some level of like artistry and vision, then you're like, well, we should probably honor that, right? Dude, this is also sort of a, an interesting aside to this is when you get to rebolt aid routes, like because in the valley, it's like as you're free climbing old aid lines, but the first ascensionist is some cranky old man. It's like, you know, we nailed that on ropes. Like nobody should change that. (laughs) And it's like kind of tough because, you know, you're trying to explain to them that literally no one has ever climbed the route again and nobody cares and nobody's (laughs) going to climb it. But if you bolt it, it's going to be a classic. Like it's going to be this incredible free climb. And you're sort of like, you know, and then at a certain point, like, you know, just because you climbed it once doesn't give you a monopoly of that piece of rock. And so it's like, Mm -hmm. yeah, you take the first ascensionist opinion into, you know, like you take their perspective and you respect it to some extent, but you know, it's like, if you know, it's going to be a great route and it just needs to be fixed up a little bit. It's like, you know, you just got to do what you got to do. I mean, most of the climbing areas we're talking about are on public land. So they are literally owned by the community. Mm. And so just because somebody climbed them once, it's like, yeah, you respect the cultural norm within climbing that the first ascensionist gets the final say on a route. That said, they don't own the route, you know, and the the public is, you know, like our tax money is funding these lands and taking care of this, you know, these areas. Kind of like, you know, the broader community probably does get get a say in it. This is a bit of a larger conversation. This is a bit of a larger conversation, but unfortunately, and fortunately, depending on how you look at it, the more people that want to access and make decisions about certain areas the more important uh, control and permitting and stuff like that becomes. I mean, you look at a situation like Waco, most of the boulders that I know feel that Waco is better than it used to be. Um, And, you know, you look at a place like Rifle Canyon, there's no bolting there allowed without a permit. 
Um, you look at the flat irons in, in just in the backyard of Boulder, Colorado. Um, there's a pretty lengthy, uh, permitting process involved with doing new rooting in the flat irons, including telling the, the, um, land managers exactly how many bolts you're going to add to each route, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And for the most part, I feel like that is good. And the only reason that I say that is because I'm not all always for regulation, but I just feel like in my experience with places like that, a, it's not completely shut out. So climbers are still able to go in and add new routes and exchange old hardware if they need to. Uh, obviously Waco is an example of that not being possible, um, which is unfortunate, but in the case of like rifle and the flat irons, for instance, Climbers are having an open conversation with land managers, which is really important. Land managers recognize that climbing is important to that area. And then the end result is that you normally end up with better products in the end. The roots generally are better. There's fewer of them. They're not crisscrossing. There's not a ton of bolts, but there also are enough bolts that it's safe. And I think that as much as I hate to advocate for too much regulation, I do think that there are times and this might be something like in the Valley or elsewhere that could help a place like 10 sleep. I mean, I'd love to see the big horns get back to a situation where bolting was allowed, but it's just on a permit process. Um, because then we're able to slow down and have a conversation as a community about, Oh, how many bolts should we have? Oh, you're going to have like 20 bolts for a 60 foot route. Like maybe that's overkill. Like let's go back. Let's take it back a notch or maybe, you know, let's talk about the type of hardware that you're going to put in the wall or, you know, let's talk about, and, and I think that then we're able to make all those decisions as a community and with the longevity of the area and the climb on the forefront. And so I I've seen most places with situations like that end up better in the end. And I don't, you know, who knows what the fate of like Yosemite and other places is going to be, but, um, in summation, I don't think as climbers, we should always be so afraid of regulation. I think that in a lot of cases it can actually make our experience better and make the, make the longevity of the area more likely. I think of actually this, um, classic mountain bike trail in Moab called the portal trail. I don't know if anyone's ever has any knowledge of that one, but it's, it's this awesome kind of old school trail and, there's a section of it where there's probably about 200 yards where there's like legit exposure and there's one section where you legitimately could like it's low speed but it's got a technical move and if you botch it you could go over a 500 foot cliff and it's not just like oh if you bounce really wrong you would go over a 500 foot cliff it's like no if you really fuck that up you would you would die. And they totally put signs like as you enter the trail, they're like, Hey, riders just like you have actually died here. And they, and then they do it again right beforehand. And it's just like, just get off your bike and walk. Like they'll, they actually like, it's, it's so interesting how they broadcast that just in case someone does find themselves there versus like, cause, cause you wouldn't know it. You know, when you dropped into it, you're like, Oh, I'm having fun. I'm having fun. And it gets slightly, slightly more technical. And I think you could, space out and not realize like, oh, wow, this is actually pretty legit. Like I'm actually standing on top of a 500 foot cliff and it's kind of, it's, and everybody walks like no one's like, oh yeah, I get there and that's really worth, I mean, some people ride it. I shouldn't say that people do ride it, yeah. but yeah, I mean, that's sort of similar to like El Dorado Canyon, for example, in Colorado, like there's a bunch of signage there that 
like there's a much higher accident rate there than a lot of other cliffs, probably because like the pros kind of sketch Colorado climbers are all Gumby. (laughs) 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 And like the rock is slippery and you know, like it's more, you know, five, seven might be like pretty technical climbing actually. And there's signs there that say like, you know, X number of accidents happen each year on this particular route. And like, make sure that you know what you're doing before you get on this route, essentially Mm -hmm. because of that. It's like coming into a job site, a little, little whiteboard at the base saying it's been four days since our last accident. (laughs) Remember your helmet. And you're like, Oh "Oh, man. I, yeah. To, to hear from you earlier, Lauren, that you think that hundreds of people, even 500 potentially could do snake die even every season then really at some point it just becomes a numbers game. And I've had this diff- this conversation with a few people that are really close to me and it's a hard conversation to have if, if there's an accident. But if one or two people are climbing Snake Dyke, it's one thing. If hundreds of people are climbing Snake Dyke, we could add as many bolts as we want to and there's still going to be accidents. I think what's more important is to give people the information they need and educate them properly so that then they can hopefully use their best judgment to make the call. Am I prepared for this? Do I, Oh, do I have a friend who's done it? Oh, they can tell me a little bit more about what it's like, you know, like in the same way that you were just mentioning that crazy mountain bike trail, it probably, when you saw the sign, you know, it probably, you might have stopped a biker that was coming the other way and said, oh, hey, what's that actually about? You know, like you probably were led then to try and gather more information to like better understand what kind of risks you were willingly going into, right? And I think that the more we can encourage that, and I don't know that we necessarily need to have a plaque at the base of every route, but if it, but I, I, I'm not against that. I actually think that if it really is out of character with other things and it's really scary and people need to be re like, you know, it needs to be assertively told to them that it's scary and that there's risk, extra risk involved on the, the thing is, is that there are certain people like Alex and I, and many others probably, probably to some extent, you guys, I can guarantee that Lisa, you're talking about being scared on certain things, but how cool was it for you to overcome your fear on some of these climbs? Yeah. And then in the end, send a route that once terrified you and you thought might maybe you'd never do it. Not for physical reasons, but for mental and emotional reasons. And then to stand at the top or to climb a 20-foot section of like run out rock and be like, that was an accomplishment, very much in the same way that like, you know, doing a moonboard problem is or, you know, doing something hard was where you were challenged you felt like it was impossible and you like overcame that thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very true. So that's an experience that people like me and like probably everyone on this call want to at least be able to access. And so I think the best way to, to uh, protect that experience, but also protect people that might not be ready for it or whatever is just with information. Thanks, Jonathan, for joining the discussion. Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape and Beer. Alex Honnold is our host. This episode was produced and edited by Marco Seiler Gonzalez and me, Fitzcall. Additional editing and mixing by Evan Phillips. Music today by Brendan O'Connell. Our executive producers are Ben Indy and Jonathan Retzik for RxR Sports and Lisey Hendricks and Becca Call for Duct Tape and Beer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>